everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. I'm here with Paul Prescott. Uh, we've got a great show tonight. We are going to have Karen Nussbaum on. She is one of the founders of the organization 9 to 5. She'll be joining us around 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, but before we get to all of that, we have an incredibly important announcement, which is that it's Paul's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so thank if you, you're out there you. and you're watching, um, hit like to wish Paul a happy birthday. Paul, hi, and happy birthday. Hey, um, yeah, that that really is the present I've always been wanting is to get more <laughs> likes and subscriptions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 30. We were just talking about this. I don't know whether to feel uh, really happy or really sad about this. Um, so this show is going to be a therapy session to help me process turning 30. Uh, and we will we will get to therapy at some point in the show. So <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> Um, so actually you have another birthday present, which is that Joe Biden, uh, came out this week and said that he, I wouldn't say endorses or supports the Amazon union, but he's very, he's been very adamant that Amazon should not interfere with workers trying to organize, which of course they shouldn't. Um, and this has been sort of interpreted as an extremely pro-union statement that, you know, it has, is, is almost unheard of from a sitting president. So let's watch a short clip of Biden giving the thumbs up to the Amazon union. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. I have long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. I've made it clear, I made it clear when I was running that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that un we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers. Full stop. Full stop. So I guess I have an early question for Labor Paul, which is, is this a promising sign? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know there's been some criticism that, you know, it's not a full-throated, clear statement of join the union. But I mean, someone should fact check me and correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I don't remember the last time a president doing something like this and being that clear about, you know, uh, workers deciding to join a union, no employer interference. Um, so that was pretty significant. Um, and you know, I think 
I'm curious of like where that came from. Was that Biden himself? Was that uh, maybe the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, who comes from the labor movement? But it's kind of interesting in these early days of the administration. You know, I feel like Biden is he's definitely throwing some bones to labor. And I'm saying that not even to be dismissive, like there are significant things like firing the NLRB general counsel, who was terrible, and he replaced it with a pro-union person. Um, the Federal Service Impasse Panel for federal workers, he fired all of them and replaced them. So I kind of wonder if he has this recognition that, you know, unions are a core part of the Democratic Party coalition mm -hmm. and like our part is still uh, helping them to win um, and he needs to do this. Um, but it is kind of interesting to see this early on. I still don't have illusions that, you know, this is he's going to be an FDR or uh, incredibly pro-union person, but it is kind of interesting what he's doing early on. Yeah, I think for me, um, I, I've been sort of struck by the difference between Biden's approach to labor and Trump's approach to labor. So Biden, as you point out, kind of has these like low-key sleeper labor hits just in the background, like the NLRB stuff um, is, is important, but I don't think is necessarily uh, like showy uh, or it's not something that everybody would immediately be like, this is a great pro-labor thing. It's kind of in the background, right? And Trump was sort of the opposite in that um, he talked a big game about protecting workers from bad trade deals. He dabbled in a lot of blue collar drag, like, you know, showing up to factories in hard hats and like sitting in big rig trucks. Um, but of course, he was extremely anti-worker. Um, his his administration was extremely anti-worker, and his NLRB was terrible. Um, and right. and with Biden, you know, like I like I said, I think especially for a lot of us on the left, there was sort of a disappointment with his lack of labor rhetoric at first. I mean, he kind of did the like Scranton Joe thing, but you know, I think everybody wanted him to go harder on that. Right. He did say he would be the most pro-union president. Um, but you know, I, I think that a lot of people expressed misgivings when he was on the campaign trail that he wasn't really talking about labor enough or he wasn't really talking about bread and butter issues enough. And I remember just last week, you know, people were saying, well, Biden hasn't come out in support of the Amazon union. When is he going to do that? Well, lo and behold, he has. So again, this isn't to say that like he is the most pro-union president we've ever had or that he's the next FDR or anything like that. Um, you know, there, there are some other parts of his uh, administration that I think are troubling uh, for labor. But that said, you know, we can't discount that. I think this is a step forward. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it might be just a sign that, you know, he is, despite how right wing he's been his whole career, like he still came of age at a time, you know, in the 70s where union density was still uh, huge. Um, and, you know, a politician had to know how to talk to unions, had to be in that world. And, you know, even uh, a local union leader um, in Philly that I work with has, and he's someone that is like us, you know, clearly understands what Biden is. But he said, like, yeah, I mean, I've been in meeting with him and he's like a charming motherfucker. Like he knows how to talk to, he knows how to talk to unions, you know, he knows mm -hmm. how to say that all, all of that. Um, so it's just kind of just been interesting to watch how mm -hmm. far this will go. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I mean, I kind of wonder is this labor secretary, what kind of influence can, can uh, Marty Walsh ha have on him? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I do want to add just really quickly. Um, so David Dayen in the American Prospect recently brought up the fact that um, Biden, Biden's White House appointed Seth Harris, who is a, an Obama administration alum, who was unfortunately one of the architects of a policy paper, which became the blueprint for um, 
for Prop 22 in California. So basically uh, uh, legislation undermining the rights of gig workers and classifying them as independent contractors or not as full employees. So that's, I think, a troubling sign or, you know, that's that's something right. that I think tarnishes the record a little bit. And again, we don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, but I did want to shout out the American Prospect for just putting that out there, <laughs> right. putting putting a little bit of a damper on the good news. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about um, the, the minimum wage fight in the Senate, because I think that's another area in which, you know, Biden could be fighting a little harder. Um, so obviously what has happened in the Senate with the minimum wage increase, which was tied to the federal relief bill, is that the Senate parliamentarian, uh, not, a, not a role that we hear often about, has recently sort of invoked this, this arcane regulation that the minimum wage increase cannot be part of the federal relief bill. And I just want to say, like, I had never even heard of a Senate parliamentarian before right. this week. And part of the reason for that is because in the past, when the person in this role has, you know, objected to some kind of uh, uh, piece of legislation or, or objected to some part of legislation that Republicans want to ram through, they just ignore the person or go around them or, like, right. I think in some cases, fire them. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it. I don't want to get into the like a hero worship thing, um, right. but it's so interesting watching this and then comparing it to like how Lyndon Johnson was a president. And again, I'm not like some Lyndon Johnson person. Obviously, uh, he was a real son of a bitch, if you know about him personally, and like obviously the Vietnam War. But, you know, uh, if he wanted something done, he would fight for it and he would do whatever it would take to do it. Um, so it's so pathetic. And, and again, maybe this is speaking to unlike unions where, there is this organized constituency that Democrats, if they're smart enough, realize they have to cater to a little bit, you know, the people that would benefit from a $15 minimum wage are not um, like an organized constituency in that same way. So maybe they feel um, that they don't really need to push for this. They don't need to fight for this. But I mean, it's just been pretty striking how, you know, easily, easily they give up in every situation. Um, and yeah, I mean, Labor should be f fighting for this more also. I mean, it'll be also interesting to see uh, where the PRO Act goes, um, mm -hmm. you know, because that that's going to take um, 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, mm. So, but of course, Biden has the excuse there, you know, so he can claim support for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It, it's like, how, how long can we keep going on with the minimum wage where it's mm -hmm. at? And especially mm -hmm. in a bill that's so modest where each year just ticks up a little bit and in five mm -hmm. years we'll get, $15 minimum wage. Yeah. You just feel like something has got to give at some point. I also just want to quickly point out raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is so incredibly popular. In fact, it's popular oh, yeah. than it's more popular than most Democrats, which I think we've talked about on this show before. You know, you saw in Florida, uh, they they passed a $15 minimum wage ballot initiative, but at the same time voted for Trump. And I think that kind of perfectly encapsulates um the just the frustration that I think at least I feel when I see the Democrats not not going as hard as I think they should for right. something like this. It's like this 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 could be a huge winner for you. And it also, Politically, I mean, yeah, not and, just morally. And it's one thing. It's like if you weren't going to do this and fight for it, why make it such a clear promise? I mean, mm -hmm. similar with the two thousand dollar checks. And mm -hmm. it's like, all right, if they get fourteen hundred, okay, fine. But it's like you were very clear. I mean, he had that whole meeting with Bernie. Mm -hmm. Where he's like, I am for a $15 minimum wage. Like, why are you making these public, mm -hmm. so public uh, statements about this if you're not going to follow through? Mm -hmm. um, 
So, I I wonder if you have thoughts on whether there's anything that Bernie can or will do, Um, because I I admit, like, I don't really know that much about, like, Senate maneuvering, to be honest. Um, But I do like that Bernie, like, every day kind of has a new scheme, it seems like, to get the $15 minimum wage across the finish line. And, you know, some of them have been sort of abandoned. Like, I think the whole, like, taxing taxing corporations that don't uh, comply with their own wage increase, I think that kind of went out the window. Um, but uh, now it looks like he's he's doing a kind of, dare I say, force the vote sort of tactic. Yeah, I mean, and I've been hearing that too. And I don't want to go fully down the force the vote rabbit hole. But I mean, I think this is is an interesting idea to consider. And I where I see it different from Medicare for all, I mean, personally, my thought with force the vote is like, that would reveal what we all knew. I mean, mm-hmm. the, Dem- the, the Democratic primary was basically Medicare for all versus everyone else. So like, Revealing that they're not for it to me does not um, tell us anything we didn't know. But I think fifteen dollar mm-hmm. minimum wage is different because, like, it was more a part of the party platform and out in public. So I do think it might be a little bit more interesting if they do force a vote on this, um, something that's been such like a public promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think on that note, uh, let's let's dive into our segments now because yeah. um, I think I think both of us have something a little different from what we usually talk about. Yours is uh, much more spicy than mine, so, uh, <laughs> right. Right. so I'm, I'm going gonna get for the popcorn ready. <laughs> Um, and I just want to remind everybody really quickly that we're going to have Karen Nussbaum on at around 630 um, to talk about 9 to 5, the organization, 9 to 5, the movie, and uh, organizing women workers today. So I guess what I want to uh, dive into for, for my bit is um, I want to talk about an incident that took place at the private liberal arts school, Smith College. Uh, this is back in the news again because of a recent article in the New York Times by reporter Michael Powell. And I actually want to quickly mention that Michael is going to be on this channel speaking to Bhaskar Sunkara about the story tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. So definitely tune into that um, if you want to hear his perspective. So um, in the summer of 2018, a student at Smith College claimed that she had been racially targeted for, quote, eating while black. Now, the student uh, who was on campus working as a TA over the summer said that a white janitor had called the police on her while she was simply eating her lunch. As she wrote in a Facebook post after the incident, all I did was be black. It's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. So this incident really seemed to echo a number of other living while black incidents that kind of unfolded across the country that year that have obviously taken place, you know, many times before. Um, And as a result, it caused kind of this instant uproar on the Smith College campus. So Smith President Kathleen McCartney immediately issued a public apology to the student. She suspended the janitor involved, and she announced that the school would commit to a raft of new racial justice measures. Since the incident, Smith has overhauled its campus policing practices, appointed a vice president of equity and inclusion, set up special dorms reserved for black students, and launched white accountability groups where faculty and staff are encouraged to educate themselves on anti-racism and, quote, unpack their white privilege. In addition to all of that, every staff member at Smith is now required to complete anti-racism training as a condition of their employment. So was this a reasonable response to an instance of racism? Well, as the New York Times recently revealed, a third-party investigation into the 2018 incident found no evidence that any racial discrimination had actually taken place. According to the report, 
The student had been eating lunch in a dorm lounge that was closed for the summer. A nearsighted janitor in his 60s saw her, alerted campus security because that's what management had instructed all staffers to do if they saw anyone in a restricted area. The campus security officer who responded to the call recognized the student. They had a cordial exchange and the officer apologized for bothering her. However, this wasn't the end. The student eventually posted the names, emails, and photos of two white staffers whom she believed had been involved in the incident and wrote, these are the racists. As a result, those staffers, who actually had not been involved, received threats and harassment via calls, social media, and mailed letters. One eventually quit, and another who was laid off during the pandemic now says that she can't find new work because her reputation has been damaged by the accusations of racism. So I think it's important to note here that these were workers who were making around $40,000 per year. So to put that into some more context, tuition plus room and board at Smith today costs over $78,000. And on top of that, the school has an endowment of nearly $2 billion. So in other words, to save face against a charge of racism, even one that was eventually dispelled, a wealthy private school and its administration cracked down on the one group that they had the most power over, which is, of course, their workers. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to suspending one janitor and failing to protect at least two other workers from baseless public smears, the school now requires its staff, aka its hourly workers, to undergo anti-racism training. Now, according to the, the New York Times, it does not require the same training of its faculty, aka tenured professors who probably earn well into the six figures. Smith employees told the New York Times that the trainings were uncomfortable, psychologically invasive, and quote, left workers cynical. Here's one former employee's account of what these mandatory sessions were like. So I was troubled by the thought of me having to talk about my identity because I don't really come to work to engage in therapy or comb through past traumas or really to talk about religion or politics or anything. I really just come to work to do my job. I approached my supervisor and I said, I don't feel comfortable discussing my race at work, so I, I don't really want to do this. And she said, just say you're uncomfortable and abstain. I thought, okay, that's... I kind of have her blessing here. So the retreat, the first day of the retreat came and there were two hired professional facilitators who presumably have authority in this area. They were from a local consultancy firm. We went around the room and the facilitators asked us to tell us about your race in the context of your childhood, your adolescence, and your college years. So now we have two things that I don't want to discuss with this group at work, which is my race, given the context and the backdrop of what's going on at that school, nor do I want to wish to discuss anything having to do with my childhood, adolescence, or college years in a workshop with my colleagues. I don't think it's relevant to my job. Everyone went around the room and pretty much recited the script. They personalized it and added concrete details from their life, but it was pretty much the script based upon their skin color. And it got to me and I said, I'm uncomfortable talking about this stuff at work, so I'm going to pass. So everything seemed like fine after that. But then a few hours later, one of the facilitators said, I want to be clear. Any white person who expresses discomfort 
or distress or any kind of resistance toward talking about their race when asked to is not actually experiencing discomfort. So don't feel like you can you you should comfort them because it's not discomfort. It's called white fragility and it's a power play. So in the past, um, both in articles that I've written and also on this channel, I've been critical of workplace anti-racism training for two reasons. One is that there's very little empirical evidence that these types of trainings reduce interpersonal racism at all. These trainings target so-called implicit bias, which is a murky concept that's notoriously difficult to quantify and tends to put people on the defensive. The other reason, which I think is even more relevant here, is that in the context of at-will employment, which is the norm in the U.S., of course, mandatory anti-racism training simply gives employers a pretext to surveil and intimidate workers while appearing tough on racism to the public. So I also want to add, um, when I've criticized anti-racism training in the past, I think some people have assumed that I'm only talking about like superficial corporate training um, and that I'm actually calling for more radical anti-racism training. And, you know, I, I want to make it clear that I, I really don't support any kind of employer mandated anti-racism training, no matter how radical it is, um, nor do I think that mandatory anti-racism training in the workplace should be part of any left or progressive agenda. So, you know, your employer should not be forcing you to read Robin D'Angelo or Ibram Kendi, or even for that matter, Fred Hampton or the Combahee River Collective as a condition of your employment. I do not think your employer should be interrogating you about your racial or ethnic background or making you share your feelings and opinions on race in America. Most of all, your employer, the entity that literally controls your livelihood, should not be lecturing you about your supposed privilege. The vast majority of us need to earn a wage to survive, which means that we don't really have much of a choice about whether we're going to go to work or not. And in many cases, we don't have much of a say over who we even work for. So, you know, when when an employer demands access to workers' uh, thoughts and political beliefs and then makes this a requirement for continuing to collect a paycheck, is it really any surprise that workers are calling bullshit? So Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels, you may have heard them say this before, they often say that anti-racism is not an alternative to class politics. It is a class politics. I think that the Smith debacle is a perfect example of what they mean. Again, this wealthy, prestigious institution and the people who run it are the ones who are propagating this program of so-called anti-racism that conveniently obscures the employment relation, collapses class distinctions, treats racial groups as homogenous, and worsens employees' working conditions under the guise of racial equity. Now, if you look at how the right-wing media has covered the Smith incident, it's clear that they think what's going on is uh, proof of racism against whites or proof of creeping Marxism or proof that the left has just gone too far. However, what I think the incident actually reveals and what the right and liberals alike constantly overlook is the sweeping power that employers exert over their employees. So in the context of the workplace, you know, even these supposedly progressive anti-racism initiatives that are administered from the top down and forced on employees will always put workers at a disadvantage. So here's a quote from Smith President Kathleen McCartney um, that I think shows how easily employers can absorb or commandeer the vague language of implicit bias to discipline workers. 
So right after the Smith employees were cleared of wrongdoing by the third-party investigation, McCartney justified her suspension of the janitor involved and her continuation of invasive anti-racism training by stating, quote, it is impossible to rule out the potential role of implicit racial bias. So in other words, workers can't prove they don't have implicit racial bias even when they're exonerated by an independent investigation, and implicit racial bias is grounds for discipline. That's awfully convenient for the boss. Now, finally, for anyone who's wondering um, what actually does work to reduce racism in the workplace, we fortunately have one tool that's proven to be pretty effective at doing this, and that is unions. Now, of course, unions are in no way perfect. They're not 100% free from racism by any stretch of the imagination. However, we have approximately 150 years of evidence that shows that they're far more likely to reduce racist attitudes among white workers than, for example, the most expensive white fragility workshop on the market. It turns out that when workers are engaged in collective action alongside fellow shop members of different races, their prejudices start to break down. Um, I want to read a quote by Megan Day, uh, who wrote in Jacobin last year, Unions give people the opportunity to routinely practice multiracial solidarity. Not only that, but they incentivize it. The more cooperative union members are, the greater unity they will have heading into a workplace struggle and the greater the eventual reward for all. In that sense, diverse democratic unions can be schools of cross-racial cooperation, which are sorely lacking and desperately needed in our racially stratified society. But of course, for some mysterious reason, employers don't like this option. That was great, Jen. Um, and, you know, and I was just thinking, like, we we really have to be careful here in terms of what what is the left known for? Like, what is mm -hmm. our reputation like? Is this really what, it, what we want to become associated with? And we know that's what's going to happen. You know, even if it's not fair, that's how the right wing is going to spin it. And, and I look at this and like, you know, the, the workers going through that training and stuff like this is like a perfect recruitment tool to go to a Trump rally. I mean, we might as well just be like sending them to to the right wing. You know, this is like mm -hmm. what they play on. And I would just suggest for people um, for a really inspiring example of interracial unionism. It's a book called uh, Religion of Unity about packing house workers in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And it's incredible how you see, you know, they started by just organizing around their shared interests. And that actually translated into like really actually breaking down uh, people's you know, even their psychological uh, racism and, and things mm -hmm. like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's amazing the quotes from the workers you'll see, you know, you have a white worker who will say, um, you know, we, none of us really like the black workers, but we understood like, if we want a union, we got to unite. The black workers would say, yeah, we don't really like the white workers. They're not treating us well, but we understood that like un unity was the only way. And through that unity, you fast forward like five years and they're working together to desegregate bars and stuff in their mm -hmm. area. And the white people actually are truly changed on a deeper level. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I would just recommend that book for people. Mm -hmm. I also want to shout out um, the episode that you and Ariella did with Richard Hooker from the Teamsters um, a few episodes back because he talks about something sort of similar happen happening in the UPS union that he's part of, where, you know, when he when he uh, joined the Teamsters leadership, um, there were some rumblings in the background from some of uh, the white shop members who, mm -hmm. you know, said things like, oh, well, like, I don't I don't really trust him or like I didn't I didn't vote for him um, and just like flat out racist 
kind of racist right. gossip. It's gonna spend um, all the money and exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh and and again, you know, he doesn't he doesn't, you know, mince words. It was definitely a a long and difficult struggle, but um at the end of the day, he wins, he wins um he wins real demands for his shop and like now all of the same workers that were grumbling about him are like, yeah, he's the man. Um, right. And and so I think, you know, it's not just that this happened in the 30s and 40s, although absolutely it did, um, but we can still see it happening yeah. even as the labor movement has declined since then. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So on the subject right. of the 30s and 40s, um, right. you have an interesting segment that I'm going to let you dive into. Um, it's It's... Of course, about workers, um, but but a group of workers that we don't talk about that often on the show. So take it away. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, we're a year into the pandemic, pandemic, and uh, one of the things I miss most about the broader society is the arts. Going to concerts, going to shows, going to any kind of live performances was something we all took for granted before the lockdown. And just like the rest of the economy, the arts and culture industry has taken a devastating hit this past year. And the burden of this crisis has, of course, fallen on the performing artists themselves and all the people who do the work behind the scenes to make live art possible. The broader arts and culture sector, including Hollywood, is an $878 billion industry. This sector supports 5 million wage and salary jobs, including makeup artists, stage hands, ushers, camera operators, and the list goes on. Most performing artists are not millionaire movie stars or pop singers. The median annual salary for full-time musicians and singers was $43,000. It was around $41,000 for actors and $36,000 for dancers and chore um, choreographers. These people rely on a consistent stream of gigs to get by, and the disruption to their economic lives during the pandemic has been astounding. According to a recent New York Times article, um, during the quarter ending in September, when the overall unemployment rate averaged 8.5%, 52% of actors, 55% of dancers, and 27% of musicians were out of work, according to the National Endowment for the Arts. My fear is we're not just losing jobs, we're losing careers, said Adam Crothammer, president of Local 802 of the American Federation of Musicians in New York. He said 95% of the local 7,000 members are not working on a regular basis because of the mandated shutdown. It will create a great cultural depression, he said. And this is nothing short of a crisis for the arts. But we can turn to some of the more inspirational aspects of the New Deal for guidance on how we approach this moment. When people hear Works Progress Administration, they usually think of government-created jobs to build dams, create national parks, and overhaul our infrastructure. But the WPA also uh, made other critical programs possible. Through the Federal Arts Project and the Federal Music Project, thousands of visual artists, sculptors, writers, actors, musicians, architects, and photographers were put to work with a living wage. These reproductions of the American scene of today will make this one of the most fertile periods of our country's art. Some of this work is done on canvas, but much of it is created on the walls of our schools, libraries, and other public buildings in the form of mural paintings. Of particular interest is the great mural in the mess hall of the Military Academy at West Point, depicting great warriors of history. An art long dormant in the United States is the creation of stained glass windows. One project devoted to this art has made a window for the Military Academy at West Point, depicting scenes from the life of Washington. 
Commemorative tablets like this are among the contributions of sculptors to the works program, and they also create works of art for our parks and public buildings. Many American museums have long been in need of highly skilled experts to restore valuable historical material, such as this Persian ceiling, which is forming under the deft fingers of a WPA artist in the Philadelphia Museum. So art and the artists that produced it were treated as something to be proud of, to treasure and to cultivate. During this brief period, art made its way out of the ivory towers, art galleries and cocktail parties and into public spaces to be enjoyed by as many working people as possible. The art historian Jody Patterson describes the artists of those years saying, they were given studio spaces, materials, a living wage, but also they had an audience and that is really key. Art is part of a dialogue. You often have work sitting in a studio or in a gallery or hung above somebody's mantelpiece, but it doesn't have public reception. These artists had a built-in expectation that they have an audience. They were going to be put out into public spaces. That was really important. Also, there was a sense of community. Artists were often meeting together, not just in some of the spaces that have been set up in terms of studios and collecting paychecks, but at union meetings. There was a social scene. Artists were, were removed from the isolation and alienation of the ivory tower intermingling and interacting and having discussions. The sculptures, murals, and paintings were done at post offices, schools, hospitals, parks, and museums, where the public lived and worked, telling the stories of working people. The Federal Art Project also had a non-discrimination clause that drew in a significant number of Black artists. 15% of all WPA employees were Black, and WPA propaganda even specifically highlighted this. Under the works program, musicians, artists, writers, and actors contribute their share to the cultural development of the community. The Negro Theater Unit of the Federal Theater Project produced a highly successful version of Shakespeare's immortal tragedy, Macbeth, which far exceeded its scheduled run in New York and was later sent on a tour of the country. The scene was changed from Scotland to Haiti, but the spirit of Macbeth and every line in the play has remained intact. In this contribution to the American theater and in other projects under the works program, we have set our feet on the road toward a brighter future. Black writers like Ralph Ellison, Richard Wright, and Zora Neale Hurston benefited from WPA art programs. Black painters like Jacob Lawrence and Alan Crite were employed by the government to depict scenes from black cultural life not usually aired in the mainstream. During its four years of federal financing, the Federal Writers Project supported almost 7,000 writers, editors, and researchers. The Federal Music Project employed thousands of musicians, gave public performances to the work of unknown composers and trained music therapists. And these programs existed within a network of universal programs that allowed more people to take advantage of them. For example, Title II of the GI Bill funded schooling for veterans at the institution of their choice. And this security allowed many people to explore their artistic talents to develop their full human potential instead of being forced to make the most pragmatic financial choice. If we could do this in the 1930s, there's no reason we can't recreate the spirit today. This should be our, our model as we face the crisis of the arts in a post-pandemic world, not a patchwork of nonprofits and foundations. And this is about more than putting money in the pockets of artists, though that is important. This is about valuing arts for art's sake, for valuing the development of every individual's full human potential instead of measuring them by the profits they can produce. When we cultivate art as a public good and not a diversion for elites, we cultivate a culture of unity and solidarity. If you want an example of just what a society can achieve when it invests in its people and its artists, look no further than Venezuela. In 1975, the program El Sistema 
was dreamed up. Soon, with government backing, it became a universal program providing hours of music instruction built into the day of every child in Venezuela. Listen to the founder of El Sistema, Jose Abreu, talking about his vision. No child is excluded. Children with special needs or who are blind or deaf all experience the transformative power of music. The set of values that is introduced into the children is that they live in a community that cooperates with solidarity so that the orchestra becomes a school of social living. The other value is that the community works and marches towards a common goal, a social goal and an individual goal. I think all music creativity is of value to all humankind, but classical music allows for a more elevated and rich set of values, more complex, more complete. The deep social impact this program has had is undeniable, keeping youth occupied in a productive collective project and avoiding the most alienating features of their surroundings. Listen to what the participants themselves say about their experience. Era el primer día de la orquesta de cámara, entonces yo venía temprano y me dijeron, mmm, me dieron un disparo en la pierna y no podía ir. Entonces yo llorando porque no me dolía, me dolía la pierna, pero más me dolía que no iba a estar aquí el día ese en la orquesta de cámara. Y se le olvida, cuando uno llega aquí se le olvida todo, todo, todo. El profesor nos dice, toquen pero con su corazón. In Venezuela, nosotros estamos in este momento trabajando para un universo de beneficiarios que se calcula en 265.000 jóvenes niños. Pero esto es apenas el comienzo. Nosotros estamos aprendiendo a tocar trompeta como para sacar nuestra familia adelante. Estamos para adelante como el elefante. 
la raíz para mí del problema social está en la exclusión. Entonces nosotros tenemos que luchar por incluir el mayor número, todos si es posible, incluirlos en este mundo bello, ¿verdad? Que es nuestro mundo de la música. So what happens when you seriously invest in music as a social right? What happens when kids from some of the poorest and most violent slums of Venezuela get this opportunity? Just watch. Just amazing. Wish we could play the whole clip. Art is increasingly becoming the domain of the privileged and elite. We need to change that. And just like so many other social problems we face, this can only truly be done by public universal programs with the full support of the federal government. Just like some people have a newfound appreciation for workers that deliver your food and your packages because of the pandemic, let us have a renewed appreciation for what artists do to make our society worth living in And let's fight for federal programs that reflect that. And, um, you know, Jen, there, El Sistema has become this global phenomenon. And there are a lot of attempts to do this um, in the United States now. But the problem is they are missing the fundamental point of it. They are trying to do it through nonprofits, mm. these very limited patchwork efforts. And, like, what makes El Sistema El Sistema is that it is a, um, it is a universal program. It has massive federal support or national mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. um, of the government. Um, so, and, you know, it, it, interestingly enough, I mean, this started before Chavez, um, it's not even necessarily a byproduct of, of a leftist government there, but it's been supported throughout the years. Um, mm -hmm. so I think people who are trying to do that here on a limited nonprofit level are kind of missing, uh, the right. key ingredient. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the most important like point that you make is that it's not just about supporting the artists themselves, although of course we want to do that, um, but it's about uh, democratizing or at least broadening access to participation in the arts, um, which as you pointed out uh, just now is sort of rapidly closing in the US. And um, it's it's just so cool, like during the New Deal, like if you wanted to right. use some stained glass or <laughs> like spend a year like going around the country, like writing poems about fields or whatever, that you could do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, right. um, you know, it, it, of course, brings to mind the kind of classic or the famous Marx quote about, you know, when we fairly distribute uh, labor and resources, you know, if you want, you can you can fish in the morning and like herd cattle in the afternoon and criticize after dinner. And you can do all of that without becoming a fisherman or, right. a, you know, cattle driver or a critic. Um, and I think for me, one of the kind of most painful things about, you know, uh, uh, trying to make it as like an artist or a writer or any kind of creative in the US is that there's such intense professionalization because mm -hmm. the path to success is so narrow. So it's like, if you wanna be a sculptor, like you have to go to Yale art school in order to have right. any kind of shot or, you know, you'll be working like a dead end job and trying to sculpt on your free time. And it's just, it's, it's a mess. So. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, people want this. I mean, talk to anyone right now, whether they're working class, middle class, leftist, not a leftist, non-political. I mean, you'll hear so many people say like, man, I miss concerts, you know, like <laughs> art is a thing, you know, even if people don't think of themselves as like a highbrow artist, like art mm -hmm. is something everyone loves and needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so we have gone a little over, and I think that Karen Nussbaum, who I really want to talk to, it has yeah. been waiting patiently. So let's go ahead and bring her on now. Um, hello, Hi. Karen. Hey. Uh, so Karen Nussbaum is the founding director of Working America and the Working America Education Fund. She was a founder and director of 9 to 5, the National Association of Working Women. She was president of SEIU District 925. And she's also the former director of the U.S. Labor Department's Women's Bureau and co-author of the books Solutions for the New Workforce and 9 to 5. Karen, again, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Hey, I'm really happy to be here. I love Jacobin. And I have to tell you, my dad, who is 97, is a working actor. And he's really unhappy because mm. he hasn't been able to get a gig since the pandemic. But uh, that's yeah. amazing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say on the subject of acting, um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to sort of start off by saying that I think lots of people are familiar with the comedy uh, Nine to Five, which, you know, of course, stars Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. And I think I think a lot of people, you know, think of the Dolly Parton song Nine to Five as kind of this great working class anthem. And they love the movie because it's this this like madcap adventure of women office workers who are rising up against a sexist and incompetent boss. Um, but I think that not everybody knows that the movie was actually inspired by a real group of women clerical workers in the 1970s. Um, this became a national organization, which of course is nine to five. Um, and then later was a union, uh, SEIU local nine to five, which I love. Um, and you, of course, were one of the co-founders of nine to five. So just to start off, can you talk a little bit about um, what you and other secretaries and clerical workers were sort of facing on the eve of starting nine to five um, and, and what really pushed you to organize? Well, I was a political activist. I had been very active in the anti-war movement, which is actually where I met Jane Fonda originally. And uh, there was, you know, it was a time of tremendous upheaval. There was a huge uh, political organizing around the the war. Uh, the women's movement was growing up. There was a huge uh, the uh, there was a disaster with 
uh, disgraced president Nixon. We forget about, you know, we, we get so fixated on Trump, we forget what a monster Nixon was. And uh, typically at the, at the same time, and you had this growth of social movements as well. And, um, but as an individual person, I was an activist in the women's movement and the, and the anti-war movement. And I had to work. I had to pay my bills like anybody else. And it, and it didn't take me long to realize that I could also be organizing on the job. There were so few jobs available for women. I got what most women ended up doing, which was to be a clerical worker. Uh, and then we began to, while the, the women's movement really hadn't been speaking to working women for the most part, uh, what we found is if we, we could make it our own, we could create a, a, a space in the women's movement for working women. And as we organized, we could transform the labor movement as well. And uh, can you kind of paint a picture for people, you know, before nine to five and the gains that you all made, you know, what was life like for clerical uh, women workers in terms of the, the treatment they had to put up with, you know, what, what was considered normal back then for women workers? Well, to start with, when you were looking for a job, you'd look at want ads and they had help wanted men and help wanted women. So it was really explicit right out there that there were just some jobs for women and and uh, you don't even bother to get the jobs for men. Uh, as a clerical worker, you a lot of the, my co-workers felt good about the fact that we had to dress up to go to work. So that must mean that we were better than factory workers. But once we started looking at the statistics, we realized that we made much less than factory workers. Uh, sexual harassment was a term that really hadn't even been coined yet, uh, and it was endemic. At nine to five, after we soon after we started, we started running contests, the pettiest office procedure, the bad boss award, uh, those kinds of things. And the, the entries were astonishing. The boss who required his secretary to sew up his pants while he had them on. Another boss who had his secretary, gave his secretary a beeper, sent her out at, at five o'clock at, at the end of the workday to the local bar and then to let him know if there were any women in the bar. And we know that these stories were true because these men and their secretaries ended up going on television. Phil Donahue, other television shows would bring them on after we had given them the awards and they wouldn't even they weren't even embarrassed. It was just accepted. Uh, so you had low pay, um, uh, no opportunity for advancement, casual sexual harassment. Um, that's what work was like in those days. And just just to follow up on that, um, so so something that you alluded to uh, just now, and something that I remember from the Nine to Five documentary is that. Um, the women of nine to five, the, the secretaries and clerical workers didn't really identify with the feminist movement, as you said, and also were not part of the labor movement, at least in the beginning. So they were kind of like at the intersection of the two, but also kind of outside of the two. Um, and, and there was something in the documentary that really struck me, which was that um, uh, one woman who was part of the organization uh, said something like, 
well, like we don't want to demonstrate because that that looks too radical. Um, and that kind of speaks to some of the other actions that you just mentioned. So could you talk a little bit about who the women of 9 to 5 were and, and why they didn't identify with either the feminist movement or the labor movement at the time? Well, the our ambition was always to reach out as broadly as possible that uh, we always believe that you shouldn't make your words be the enemy of your ideas and at the time you had a labor movement that uh, had taken a step back wasn't doing much organizing uh, was seen as the domain of men um, you know they they had uh, hit a peak in membership and were mostly administering contracts around then uh, there had been a big wave of organizing spurred by the civil rights movement, largely in the public sector and in uh, the healthcare industry. Uh, but outside of that, there, there wasn't much room. And the women's movement uh, was seen as being, uh, you know, it, it had been named as women's libbers, you know, that it, it had a, 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 an image that didn't seem um, appealing to most working women. So we just took those ideas about women's equality, women's empowerment, the right to have a say on the job, um, that, that women were legitimate workers no matter how we were treated, and broke that down into small enough bites that any woman could join, any woman could find strength in herself from being part of something bigger. Uh, any woman could grow from that experience and then begin to identify in a much um, bigger way. We had no backlash from women. Um, it, you know, we were able to uh, talk about things in a way that uh, just opened a door, didn't close any doors, uh, and it was wildly successful. And uh, to, to follow up on this, um, you know, talking about how you made the organization as broad and inclusive as possible. And this might be kind of a leading question, but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that I mean, I think this is a huge problem on the left today. If I'm being frank, that, you know, instead of the mindset of being as broad and, you know, reaching to people that don't already agree with us, it's like, let's add litmus tests upon litmus tests upon litmus tests. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you see that as like an issue uh, that's out there now among the left? Yeah, I do think it's a problem. And the work that I do with Working America now, America is a, and uh, we call it the community affiliate of the FLCIO. It's the community organization that goes out every night into working class communities. Uh, going door to door when there's in a pandemic, um, talking with people, the people who aren't talking to us, you know, that you we have to go out there and not prejudge what people are going to think, who they are, how they're going to respond. Uh, we need to be human beings. And if you do that, then you can have the chance of connecting with someone as another human being. Um, we go into working class neighborhoods. We uh, talk to people who don't have a union on a job because they already have a connection. Uh, and the people who are apolitical or who are uh, Trump voters or swing voters and have the conversations with them about what do you care about? Um, uh, there's strength in numbers that if we join together, become a member tonight, and if we join together, then we can do something about the big corporations that have way too much control over our government and our economy. That's a message that that 
two thirds of the people we talk to every single night agree with and sign up and become a member. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you break it down and you don't have a prejudice about who you're talking to, you can make a connection that can turn into worker power. So something that is, um, I think, kind of related to that is uh, uh, in the documentary Nine to Five. I think I think you or one of your colleagues point out that in the 1970s, um, clerical workers actually were a much larger part of the workforce than manufacturing workers or construction workers. Um, and you know, uh, this is also, as you mentioned, a time when women are entering the workforce in very large numbers. So in a way, this was a sector that was almost primed to be organized or almost ready to be organized. And I guess I'm wondering if you see any analogous part of the workforce today. Uh, sure. And, you know, in a way, but the, the conflict that we were experiencing was that here, most people thought the common worker was a man in a hard hat. But in fact, there were far more women behind a keyboard than there were men in hard hats. Um, but just our sheer size didn't make us ready to organize because we had we were invisible. Mm -hmm. We didn't exist in popular culture. We didn't exist as a, a recognized workforce. Um, and you have to create a a sense of identity and common uh, cause with people, uh, uh, you know, across race and class who can share the same concerns. With so many women and just a handful of jobs, we were middle class and working class women, white, uh, black, brown, all races. Um, uh, and we we came together consciously. You know, you had to be very thoughtful about building the organization and making it inclusive. And you can see that from this picture um, uh, of, of women in Cleveland. And here are women uh, our, our members in Cincinnati who worked for four years to bring a union to the clerical workers at their campus. These were largely conservative, apolitical women, and you can see how furious they are and how ready to fight. Uh, that's the potential that we have. Um, if we do good organizing, if we're conscious about breaking down divides, um, and if we're serious about power. Um, there's a, I guess this might be a spoiler alert, but there's an interesting moment in the movie where, you know, you all got organized, you confronted the boss and then nothing happened. And then you realize, oh, we should maybe learn about organizing. So, and you, people took, uh, trainings from the Midwest Academy. Can you tell me like, what did people learn from the Midwest Academy that they didn't have before? You know, the, the Midwest Academy had just started and they were teaching basic community organizing techniques. And what we did was we took, you know, uh, bring people together and have the next thing that you're going to do uh, ready to go and have a target uh, and, you know, know what you're going to demand and what you're going to do when they don't agree to the demands and, you know, basic strategy stuff and basic um, ways to keep people engaged. Uh, what we did is we took community organizing tactics and we brought it into downtown. Uh, we organized in workplaces and our community, though, was downtown in cities around the country. Um, uh, so we were able to open up a space for organizing, a discussion around 
jobs, uh, a discussion about rights and respect for women workers, which then created a brand new opportunity to talk about unions. And I think if we hadn't had that space that we created, then it would, we wouldn't have been able to move to the next step. And I think that we're seeing that today. Fight for 15 uh, is a great example of engaging the discussion uh, creating an identity among workers who otherwise had not had a common identity uh, and a strategy to unionize at the same time. So before we um, dive into 9 to 5 affiliating with SEIU, um, I, I do want to pause on 9 to 5 the movie, um, which came sort of in between 9 to 5 the organization and 9 to 5 the union. Um, so you had mentioned you knew Jane Fonda from Vietnam War, um, anti-war activism. Can you talk a little bit about how the movie came to fruition and specifically um, why why was it important to make this movie a comedy and not a documentary, which of course comes later, but also not like a serious drama? Yeah, I, I was friends with Jane. We'd been at meetings over the years. And uh, then when the war finally ended in 1975, Jane decided to go back into her career as an actress. Here you see her at our annual summer school that we had at Bryn Mawr College every year uh, with our Raises Not Roses t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, uh, Jane, uh, I would tell her about the organizing that we were doing and what was happening in, in these workplaces and, and the, the bubbling up of, you know, response from women all around the country. And it was her idea to make a movie. She said, I want to make a contribution in the best way I know how, and that's to make a major motion picture. So it was her idea, but then I had to write a, um, a memo a pitch memo to the studio about why there would be an audience uh, because women office workers had been completely invisible in popular culture. There'd been nothing with the exception of Susie, the secretary on television in the 1950s. Um, so uh, Jane uh, thinks about making the movie. She puts together the cast and uh, she spent one long night with our, about 40 of our members in Cleveland asking them about their jobs. Uh, and towards the end of the discussion, she says, you know, let me just ask, has anybody ever dreamed about killing their boss? And the organizers in the room were all horrified, you know, oh, so outlandish. How can, you know, so Hollywood, how can she ask that? But the room lit up because every single woman had a story about her fantasy about killing her boss. And all of that comes into the movie. Jane had, and that's what made the difference for Jane. She originally thought it was going to be a drama, and then she realized it had to be a farce. So the movie ends up being, you know, more modern times than Norma Ray, uh, and I think that's what makes it so wildly affected. I think it's the best example of popular culture catapulting a social movement, uh, that it comes right on the, you know, it, it builds on a, a growing social movement uh, and then moves the discussion away from the debate about, you know, is there discrimination in the workplace? because millions of people go into a movie theater and when they come out, of course there's discrimination in the workplace it's, and it's outrageous. And now the discussion becomes, what are we gonna do about it? Um, it's a, uh, it, it was a thrilling moment. And we had actually started our union as a local union in Boston uh, in the 
1975, but right around the time that the movie came out, we became a national union. And we just embraced, we, we decided to call everything nine to five. Nine to five, the association, you know, it's got the character and concerns of the working move, women's movement, the power of a union, our union nine to five, and it's got the glamour of Hollywood. We thought, I hope everybody gets confused about it because that's the power in it. Turns out the U.S. working class is extremely militant. Everyone wants to kill their boss, apparently. Uh, who would have known? Um, yeah, if you only just connect that to, like, grievances. You know, right, yeah, not as sexy. You know, there's a few steps in between, right? Right. I do love it that in the movie 9 to 5, the fantasies that the workers have about, like, kidnapping and offing the boss were actually drawn from things that women workers oh, had yeah. told Jane Fonda. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> well, I don't think it would have been as successful. You know, if, the, if Hollywood writers had made it up, it wouldn't mm -hmm. have landed. Uh, but because it would, grew right out of the experience of women, it's like evergreen. I mean, I can't tell you the young people I know who tell me that their grandmothers made them watch nine to five with them. <laughs> and I think or that the, means the song, you know, which is evergreen yeah. as well. It's kind of amazing. Uh, but the, the tragedy is that, um, you know, this movement that had this fantastic momentum um, just, crashed on a, uh, you know, a, a sharp right turn, both in politics and corporate policy in, in the States in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, we announced the, um, uh, the beginning of our national union, District 925, the week that uh, President Reagan fired all of the union members mm -hmm. from the air traffic controllers. Um, so, you, you know, it's the perfect uh, uh, example of these two trends that were going uh, happening at the same time, this momentum among workers and this uh, um, crackdown on the part of uh, both co a corporate elite that had decided they were no longer going to uh, compete on the high road, they were going to compete on the low road in the face of global competition and they take out unions over the next 15 years uh, and the birth of uh, the uh, a consolidated new right wing. Uh, the same year that we started nine to five, Phyllis Schlafly started uh, Stop ERA. Hmm. We didn't come in conflict with it, but that whole movement just gained tremendous steam and we weren't prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, to go back a little bit, so I'll combine two questions in one. So, you know, nine to five is first this organization, not quite a union. So first question is, what did nine to five win concretely uh, for clerical workers? And then what prompted the decision to become a union? Uh, I'm sorry, what was the second part? Uh, what, what prompted the decision to become a union? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, um, we knew about unions, <laughs> We, we knew there was power in unions and it was a strategy. It's a, it was an approach that said, let's open the door as wide as we can, bring people in, give them transformative experiences, and then cement that in permanent institutions that can really wield power. Uh, so it was always a, a, a way to approach building both movement and organization. The, um, uh, 
we 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 really made a big difference. What can I tell you? You know, things that if you watch the nine to five documentary now, you, younger people are appalled at what the working conditions were like. Uh, the casual uh, sexual harassment is is illegal and uh, not acceptable. It may go on, but at least it's not acceptable. Uh, but it was completely uh, uh, ordinary in those days. Um, the fact that women got paid less than men because the men were men and supported families, presumably, well, that was something your boss would tell you, and that wasn't illegal. Uh, we were able to uh, to change women's role in the workplace, and I'll tell you the 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 um, the momentum that we built both through our public action, through our lawsuits, through our unionization, put so much pressure on employers that they, by the 80s, decided, okay, we'll, we'll create a safety valve here. We'll let uh, higher level women, college educated, middle class, mostly white women into the game, let them be professionals and uh, managers, where those jobs have been totally uh, unavailable to women until the 80s. And so they split the workforce. They met the demands of higher level women and they made life and work worse for working class women. Uh, and, and we've been living with that strategy for the last two generations. Uh, we have to um, celebrate the real changes that we made uh, we have to celebrate the ways unions have changed because there were powerful women coming in with our own agenda and our own power into unions. Um, those are important changes, uh, but we have to make sure that we are better prepared going into this next decade of massive opportunity uh, that we uh, build the powerful permanent organizations that we need. Yeah, so so that reminds me of of something that I wanted to ask you, which which you kind of got at just now. Um, when I was watching, you know, the nine to five documentary, I, I was struck that one of the demands of the the secretaries and the women workers was they wanted more opportunities for advancement and promotion, and that absolutely made sense in in you know that context where you know as you say there was a huge pay disparity, women were being passed over for for advancement and promotion, and that's actually a theme in the movie Nine to Five as well, um, and. Something that you just brought up now, um, which I have been thinking a lot about, is I think that this demand for opportunities for advancement, especially among, as you were saying, like professional class women now, that's almost in many cases supplanted the demand for collective action. And I think the mm -hmm. most famous example is like Sheryl Sandberg lean in or like on an even more abstract level, like when Hillary Clinton was running for president in 2016, you heard a lot of rhetoric like, well, this this will be great for all working women because she's breaking the glass ceiling. Um, and of course, you know, at Jacobin, we always say like, well, well, we're interested in raising the floor for right. the many rather than breaking the ceiling for the few. But I'm wondering as somebody who has kind of, who, who you know, um, has obviously been in a movement that took that demand very seriously when it was when when it was um, a huge issue for women in the workplace. Like, how do we reconcile that tension? I'll tell you, Jen. I never thought that was a very important demand, <laughs> but, but and to me, it was always a symbol of how 
um, how constrained the imagination of so many women was at the time. You know, we the, we we did early in the uh, beginning of nine to five the association. We created the nine to five Bill of Rights, and you know, and, and so we got you know. 50 or 100 members together and they debated what to go into the Bill of Rights and it includes things like job posting, but it doesn't include, you know, childcare or, mm. you know, higher pay or, you know, and it's that it represented what women at the time felt that they could ask for. Uh, their, their imaginations weren't big enough. Now, it was also, as you say, a, a huge problem at the time. Um, but how do you make solutions be um, about the collective good, not about allowing individuals to then find their way, and then and then you're left with nothing? Uh, could you go a little bit into like the organizing mechanics of how you made the organization racially diverse and reached truly, you know, all the all the workers that there were to be reached? Yeah, you know, it's. It's not that complicated. It's just hard. <laughs> you, know, you have to be really thoughtful about it. Mm -hmm. um, so we never had a, you know, a meeting or a, a, an event or people who spoke to the press. There was nothing that we ever did that didn't always have. It, it was always racially integrated. It always had older women and younger women. It always had working class women and middle class women. And it was just, it was what we taught all of our organizers to do. It's how we built our organizing teams. Uh, and that's, that was their job uh, going into the, into the organizing as well, that you have to uh, live what you preach. And then you have to give people experiences that help them overcome the limits of their own lives. Um, so, you know, you it, when you team uh, co-chairs who are of different races or, uh, you know, uh, two people who have to bring the snacks to the next meeting and they are from different industries and are, you know, the one's college educated and one has a high school education. You bring people together who otherwise don't have that opportunity, and then they make that connection, and they and they make common cause, and it uh, builds. You know, you you just have to think about it. It's just good organizing, and um, and you you know it gets back to what you were talking about earlier, Jen that you don't have litmus tests, that you don't tell people what they can say and what they can't say, um, that uh, you have to let people be humans and learn from their experience. Now, we were, that doesn't mean we didn't have problems, especially on the union side, you know, with, a, with the association, when you're doing organizing um, citywide, you've got limitless numbers of people you can try to attract. In an organizing campaign, you've got you know, a limited workforce, and uh, we had to be, you know, we had to insist that white workers um, respect black organizers, um, and it, it just had to be clear that that's what we were about. 
So something that I also wanted to ask is, as somebody who's been kind of part of the labor movement or part of a union proper, and then, of course, um, outside of that, um, I think these days, you had mentioned the Fight for 15 earlier. Um, we have we have other sort of pro-worker organizations that are not unions proper, um, not just the Fight for 15, but we also have things like the National Domestic Workers Alliance or like the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Um, Sometimes these are organizations that, you know, are made up of people who don't have collective bargaining rights because they're classified as independent contractors, um, you know, or their worker centers or or just just kind of there's a network of um, pro labor or like pro worker organizations that aren't unions proper, as I say. Um, I think people used to call this alt labor. I don't know if people are still using that term, um, but I'm wondering what you see as the potential. Do you see do you see there being a potential for uh, this this kind of network to grow or to be integrated into the labor movement? Um, yes and no. I think it, it depends on what people do and the alliances that they make. Um, one trajectory for uh, what used to be called alt-labor organizations is integrating people into the workforce. That doesn't necessarily mean integrating them into the workforce uh, in the context of greater worker power. Uh, there's, a, there's an important job to be done about uh, raising standards. And these uh, organizations do fantastic work in raising standards. Uh, but that's not the same as power. You need power to raise standards, but it doesn't necessarily give you power. It doesn't give you that ongoing power. Uh, and so I would, uh, I think that the strategy of having an outward facing non-collective bargaining organization that works with collective bargaining organizations is a good one. And certainly that's what the, the intent is for Fight for 15 and with many of these worker center organizations as well. Um, but, uh, but I think if the left doesn't appreciate the, spe the special, unique uh, value of unions um, and do everything that we can to make sure that the trade union movement survives and thrives in this next period, uh, then we will, you know, we'll lose it all. There's no substitute for democratic, self-sustaining organizations of working people. Uh, you know, getting a grant from Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, you know, awesome if you can do it, but they're not going to fund Amazon workers to organize. They're not going to fund any workers to organize. Uh, we need to pay for our own organizations. We need to vote on what we care about. We need to exercise democracy in our daily lives. Uh, I, I talked to a, a local labor leader who said, we need more organizations where people, uh, you know, take minutes, you know, where where there's a, a, a daily life of the organization where you practice democracy. We need that for our democracy in our country, too. Um, so I, I think that there is an extremely important role for uh, organizations that aren't collective bargaining organizations to reach big numbers of workers, uh, but there is no substitute for unions. Very well said. Um, so when you look out today, I mean, what would you say are the biggest challenges facing uh, women in the workplace today? <laughs> or is it all yeah. the same? 
<laughs> well, you know, one of the shocking things about the documentary is that the agenda is not that much different. Uh, you know, some things are now taboo, but like, what does that get us? <laughs> Our, our our pay is less, our jobs are more insecure, we don't have, you know, pensions, whoever heard of a pension, <laughs> those things used to exist. Um, and when I started working in 1970, I had, I made minimum wage, but I had five days sick leave and five days vacation. And yeah, that's our very first um uh, National Secretary's Day uh, protest in 1974. Um, uh, work has got, as we all know, is worse now than it was 50 years ago. There's no future for most workers. The gig economy is a horror show. Um, so we've got all the problems that we had then of you know, lack of power, lack of respect, lack of control, um, and uh, magnified uh, because there's, they're even, because now you aren't even a worker in the gig economy, but you're just, uh, a, you know, a battered cog. Um, so uh, I think that um, the the organizing principles are the same as they were in the 50s. Um, the marriage of movements with institutions is the same, uh, but that we have to be crystal clear about just how powerful the opposition is. Uh, they are uh, in disarray, and we better take advantage of that and build institutions while we can. All right. So I think our last question, unfortunately, um, do you want to say anything more about uh, Working America, what the organization is yeah. what working on? Yeah, sure. No, I, you know, I loved nine to five all those years and I love Working America. <laughs> working America is this really unique organization. We've got three and a half million members and they're the people who are not in anybody else's organization, at least on the left. We know that because we actually matched our membership list with that of, of, uh, uh, the, the big uh, catalyst list that capture everybody else's organization. There's like 10% overlap. White working class, black working class, Latino working class, um, that's who our members are. They are largely apolitical. Uh, they're the people who aren't on the hard right or the hard left. They're not watching cable TV. Uh, and for that reason, they are open to discussion. Um, we find that uh, a conversation at the door with a stranger is amazingly powerful. And we marry that with the very um, best analytics out there. Uh, we believe that everything that you do has to count because we're spending very often workers' dues. We're part of the labor movement. And we want to make sure that every penny that we spend that comes from a worker's dues is one that helps build a powerful movement of workers. Um, we uh, were had a, a tremendous effect in the last election on, on moving Trump voters to vote for Biden. Um, um, we've got all different ways to, to demonstrate that. And now we really want to, you know, these next four years are so crucial. Uh, we need to reach those apolitical people who are so vulnerable to the right wing um, and make sure that, uh, you know, that we deprive the right of their recruits to fascism, really, and bring them over to our side. Uh, 
it can be done. We do it every single day. It's a really um, uh, glorious mission. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's one that I invite everybody to join me in. Awesome. Um, I think that's all the time we have, Jen, unless you have any last questions. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, yeah. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, this was very great talking about uh, 9 to 5, the organization, 9 to 5, the SEIU local, and of course, 9 to 5, the movie. <laughs> well, Jen and Paul, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Karen. So great. Bye. I uh, highly recommend anyone watch the documentary. I think it's free on PBS. That's where I saw it. Um, I think it is too. Yeah, Paul and I were just before the show. We were saying we we both had a chance to watch the documentary over over the weekend. Um, so I think it's streaming on PBS. It's it's amazing. Um, I confessed to Paul uh, near the end. I like teared up a little bit. The documentary is that good. So <laughs> definitely watch it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of fun. I mean, when I thought about having Karen on, I honestly didn't know much about her personally or her politics, and it's amazing. I mean, I think we're very much aligned. Um, so that that was great having her on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, on on a related note, yes. um, we have labor Paul questions. Um, just to remind everybody uh, who's watching, um, so so Paul uh, takes questions every show that he's on that have to do with labor. Uh, so that you know that can range anywhere anywhere from how do I organize my office all the way to what do you think of labor after Taft Hartley, uh, which is a question that we have gotten before. Um, so let us bring up the first question. Oh, this is one tailor made for Paul. <laughs> so, how does one go about making a teachers' union local more democratic, militant, and strategic in fighting austerity and privatization? Paul, this is right up your alley. Yeah, and, and actually, the person that submitted this is a former member of my union, PFT. Um, so, this is a great question. Um, I think, you know, what they've done in the Chicago Teachers Union and the uh, United Teachers of Los Angeles should kind of be a north star for us. Um, and both situations involve challenging the leadership in elections and winning and, you know, going from that position to deploy the resources of the union. Uh, but I don't want to say across the board that the immediate answer is always start a caucus and challenge the leadership. I mean, I think it's a case by case basis. People should try to work with their union leadership where possible. But sometimes and as it's been proven in these cases, it does come down to an electoral challenge. And in the CTU and UTLA, um, you know, when they started caucuses, um, they were not purely for the purpose of running an election. So they were vehicles for organizing the members around the issues affecting them and showing that a model of how the union could be run differently and be more successful in fighting austerity and other issues they were facing. So it was only through doing that organizing work that a caucus could have enough credibility to win a union election. And you know, part of the way to do this is building community alliances with parents and students. That's something in Chicago and LA they did you know, perfectly. Um, you know, so you can get with a group of people. And I think the key is to always be organizing around the most important issues um, and show by example that there's another model that can get us more victories. And I think some leftists make the mistake of, um, you know, if they're starting a union caucus, seeing their role as like raising the most exotic left wing political demands. And I think it's really more about finding the issues that are most broadly and deeply felt by the members and having a credible plan to win on those and demonstrating that you can win. Um, and I think lastly on this, I'll say, you need to tie the issues that seem abstract to a concrete program. You know, I think vague talk of democracy may not really move many union members, but if you stress it in the context of, 
you know, we need to discuss these contract proposals. We need to get member input on contract proposals, or we need to really discuss strategy in a moment of action. I think that can get people moving more uh, when it's not an abstraction about democracy or equality, you know, tie it to a concrete issue. Um, so that, I mean, there's no way to fully adequately answer that in a quick amount of time, but that's what I have for now. So I have a quick follow-up question, which is in, in your time as a member of PFT, have you noticed any changes? Like, has it changed much since you started? Yeah. I mean, and you know, there is a, a caucus inside the union that I, you know, I've been active with and we have run for leadership a few times. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think people, um, there's just more members who are more involved and have certain skills that they wouldn't necessarily have, um, you know, without people trying to be there to, to develop those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even, you know, the union, the current union leadership has kind of um, gotten in its head more that they need to communicate more and be more transparent. Um, and I think they have slowly raised members expectations um, as a result of this, you know, kind of pressure, you know, we should, realize like it is actually very healthy for unions mm-hmm. to have different slates, different caucuses, you know, the United Auto Workers used to be famous for their conventions having like three different caucuses debating all kinds of questions. And that's that's just like very healthy internal culture. It's not even always about like, you know, even if you're challenging a, a union leader, like I would never put even a union leader that's not great on the same level as like our class enemy. You know what I mean? Um <laughs> So it, it doesn't always have to be necessarily nasty. I think that's just it, building a vibrant culture in the union. Just like if you had a vibrant political culture means we have more than one political party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So next labor Paul question. Um, uh, so this is about the city university of New York. The CUNY union includes profs, grad students, food workers, sanitation workers, etc. Is this a good model given these different workers divergent interests? So um, this is what we call wall-to-wall organizing when you organize every worker in that particular place, whatever the occupation. So, and I think it is a good model because while, you know, there are different jobs with different skills and issues, I wouldn't necessarily say that their issues are divergent. And I think this model demonstrates that we actually have the same issues of better pay, benefits, and working conditions. Um, I think it does present challenges to how to get these different occupations and people on the same page, but I think it projects a message of maximum solidarity of working people. And, you know, sometimes you have issues where in one shop, there are multiple uh, different unions. Sometimes they can be played off each other and fragmented. I think this model um, avoids that. So, you know, I, I haven't really seen many issues with this kind of model. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that much about it either, but just from an intuitive perspective, it seems like, well, it would be much worse to di- to divide up the workplace, yes? Right, yeah, and I think part of this is also case by case, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, overall, I don't see an inherent problem. Many nurses mm-hmm. unions are doing this also. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's like health uh, technology technicians and nurses, so like trying mm-hmm. to organize them all into the same union. I suppose maybe a fear would be that the like higher paid or like, you know, higher prestige uh, elements of the union would somehow dominate uh, the demands that the union is putting forward. Um, Have you seen have you ever seen that play out or is that kind of an unfounded fear? 
Sorry, can you repeat the question? Uh, um, just that I think maybe um, one fear about kind of lumping all different types of workers into the same union is that the higher paid workers wow. or like the more elite workers would some their concerns would dominate the union somehow um, just by, you know, virtue of the power differential. But I'm wondering if, if you think that's unfounded or or if you've seen that play out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, even I'll even say in my union, you know, we include like uh, so teachers, but also school secretaries, school mm -hmm. nurses, um, paraprofessionals. And I think I mean, one thing we have been working on is um, uh, making paraprofessionals more an integral part of the union. So they are severely like underpaid and their contract looks like way different than ours. So I don't think it's like a totally unfounded um, danger of that happening. You can also make the counter argument that, you know, if paraprofessionals were in a separate, smaller union, they would still have less power. And I think it still would be ideal to have uh, a sector like that have a voice in a bigger union instead of like having a separate union that might be smaller and less powerful. I don't think it's inherent that in our union, paraprofessionals have to not be respected. I think that's something we can mm -hmm. actually change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so I think we have one more Labor Paul question. Um, and this one, uh, so so this writer says, I'm a grad student wondering how to best organize my union as most students are nominally left-leaning, but don't see themselves as workers, but rather in a transitionary stage. Um, and, and I think that we, I think that that this is gonna be something that comes up with, you know, every grad student union or, you know, um, I don't know if you remember this, but, um, a while ago, interns tried to unionize, mm. or they did unionize. This was back in like 20, 2013 or like 2014 or something. And the problem, of course, is that this is a group that's so transitory. Like by nature, these people will not be in this job in one to five years, right? Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, so I, I've never done grad student organizing. And just so people know in general, I try to talk to other people to for these questions to get, you know, feedback. And so I talked to a friend of mine that, was recently involved in trying to organize grad students. And they said, I mean, one argument most likely to be effective is pointing out how tied grad students are to the whims of their advisors. Um, and it really highlights like how precarious their position is and that they are not, you know, they are indeed a, a worker. And it kind of sets up this power relationship that is easily exploited. And I think, you know, if you tap into their real grievances, like I, I'm sure everyone is going to have some experience that highlights that. And also, you know, many grad school programs, like it might be transitory, but it's still people are there for a very long time um, doing research or whatever. So I think stressing that and just, yeah, especially if you're talking about adjuncts, I mean, increasingly, unfortunately, like people are not going to be uh, becoming tenured professors anytime soon. They're relying on adjunct labor more and more. And I think people know that. So you can stress that like, you know, chances are you're going to be stuck here for a while. Um, and so you should have a union. Um, so that, that's the best I can do on, on that one. I think if, if all else fails, there's always work at the post office. <laughs> yeah. Another one of your favorite topics. Right. Um, I, do you think there's been an increase in grad student unionizing over the last say 10 years? I mean, I feel like I've heard a lot about it over, again over like the last, you know, five yeah. to 10 years. Um, and I can't tell if that's just because, you know, the people who work in media, like no grad students. So they're like, we want to, we want to focus on this or whether there really has been as a result of, you know, now two recessions and again the ongoing adjunctification of the academy mm. whether there has been a rise in grad student organizing do you have a sense of that 
Yeah, I, I don't have empirical evidence. I do think there has been a rise. Um, and, you know, also, I mean, part of why Trump's NLRB sucked and it mattered is that, you know, they did offer a lot of bad rulings when it came to grassroots organizing. So there was a lot of like, you know, elections being held, but they were um, basically thwarted by the NLRB. Obviously, you should see that changes under Biden, but I, it does seem like there is an uptick in uh, grass student union organizing. Um, so, which is, you know, is a good, good thing. I don't, it's not like necessarily the most strategic sector in the world, but, you know, still everyone should have a union. And I think especially for adjuncts, which of course is just becoming the wave of the future. Like it is really important for them to be organizing and also just having a say in how the university runs. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, um, if the letter writer is out there and you or anybody else have follow-up questions for Paul about how to best organize, uh, what you should do next, or just any question on labor history or, or anything about unions, um, definitely submit the questions either in the comments or in the chats. You sh- use the hashtag LaborPaul if you hit up Paul on social media. Um, and... I think actually we are going to wrap it up for tonight. Um, All of us are sort of having internet troubles here and Paul has vanished. Oh no, he's back. He's back back. right in time, right in time to say goodnight. So again, Oh, and again, if you were not here at the beginning, it is Paul's birthday. So please hit like to wish Paul a happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah. Wish me luck in my thirties. You know, (laughs) I'm going to start stretching more, I guess. Um, I won't be eating more healthy, but um, drinking more water. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. Something like that. Um, Um, Yeah. Again, happy birthday, Paul. Um, This was a great show. Uh, Again, Biden Biden's present to you was his pseudo endorsement of the Amazon union. Um, Hopefully that goes well in the next couple of weeks. Um, So thanks for watching, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.